Well, we are in our second week in uh, this journey into Paul's letter to the Roman church. And again, our series name is the word faith. The series is called A First Century Faith for the 21st Century. And we're going to look at the book of Romans, go chapter by chapter. And we called it faith because uh, that's really the theme of the book of Romans. Uh, Paul mentions faith more than 40 times, more than any other book in the entire Bible. He mentions the word faith. And he says in chapter 1, verse 17, that we looked at last week, the righteous shall live by faith. That's a quote from the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk. And so that is our theme. How can we be strengthened in our faith? How can we live by faith in Jesus Christ? How can we share our faith? What is the content of our faith? We said last week, and it's important to keep in mind, that uh, the book of Romans, in my opinion, is uh, Paul's greatest epistle, greatest epistle that the Holy Spirit used his life to write. If you understand the book of Romans, you will understand the general content of the entire New Testament. And so uh, it's really a foundational book. It's a perfect time for a church to be looking at this. Today, we're going to be looking at this passage, Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32. If you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles there, we'll read it in a few moments, or you can look at your Bible app. We're going to have it on the screen as well. The title of today's message is, The Gentiles Are Guilty Because of Self-Worship. The Gentiles Are Guilty Because of Self-Worship. Now, before we get into this message, I want to mention a couple things of why this sermon is important. Number one, what we're going to learn in this sermon is we're going to learn about um, why all of us who are Gentiles, Gentiles is just another uh, biblical word for non-Jewish, why all of us Gentiles in our natural spiritual state uh, are worthy of God's wrath. Why is that the case? And we're going to look at that in Romans chapter um, one, and why do we deserve that? Because of our desire to worship, not God, but ourselves. Secondly, the thing we're going to focus on and we're going to come away with is we're going to have a framework in our minds, uh, what we might call a spiritual anthropology, an understanding of how God has designed the human spirit to worship him. This second point about a spiritual anthropology is very important that you understand what we're going to be talking about in this sermon for the following reasons. In our world today, we, we tend to categorize people. We, we, if, we were, if we were to ask the question, what is wrong with people today? What is wrong with society today here in the West? you would get a number of answers. You would say, well, the problem that people have today, we put them in these categories. The problem is that people are socialist. They're alt-right. They're progressive. They're liberal. And we tend to put people in these categories as if that was the primary problem. People's economic, their political, their social views. But what we're going to learn in this passage is that that is not the primary problem. The primary problem is worship. This is important to understand the spiritual anthropology of the human soul, not just because it clarifies the, the worldly definitions um, rather than replacing them uh, rather than biblical definitions. But secondly, a spiritual anthropology is important because it will help give clarity to, to the LGBTQ issue in our culture. You will, at the end of this sermon, understand 
what the primary issue is on the LGBTQ plus issue is, we get caught up in a lot of extraneous issues in our conversations and culture. We think that the primary issue in that entire massive societal conversation has to do with uh, the legalization of gay marriage. It has to do with, are we going to find a gay gene or not? Does it exist? We think of, um, well, what was the pe person's family background? How did that contribute or not contribute? We think about issues of, um, the uh, uh, did the person suffer trauma or not? And how that might have contributed? What is the pop uh, culture milieu and, and mindset that might encourage that? Is this the evolution of society uh, evolving into a higher place? Or is it going downwards towards Babylon? And we tend to look at this issue, LGBTQ+, within that framework. Now, those issues, to varying degrees, are important. We're not going to have time to get into those. But this passage is going to zero in on what the primary spiritual issue is on that conversation. This is hardly ever talked about by Christians, period, because they don't understand what the primary issue is. And so by the end of the sermon, you will. This passage will help bring clarity in addition to that. When you look at cultural events like Burning Man that just happened in Nevada, happens every year. Many of you are familiar with it in August. Um, thousands of people go out to the desert in Nevada for uh, like a week-long uh, gathering. It's environmentally friendly, but it's basically a free-for-all of lawlessness. It's the worship of Baal. You get to dress up in, in kind of advanced cosplay costumes or nothing at all if you want. Um, there's concerts. It's kind of this Mad Max meets Coachella kind of experience where you have the young, you have the old there. And how might Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32, our passage today, interpret what Burning Man is about as a sign of our times, of where the human spirit is at here in the West. This passage finally will also help interpret uh, a statement by a woman named Camille Palea. Palea is one of the women that I quote in one of the Christian books that I wrote. Palea uh, is a self-described second wave pagan feminist. This is a woman, I think she's in her 60s or so, and uh, she did her dissertation for her PhD at Yale. And Palea did her dissertation on the topic of androgyny. And here's what she essentially said. I'm going to give you her the summation of her statement and why it's relevant to this passage today. Palea, she's not a Christian, a first wave pagan feminist, said this. She said that in her dissertation on androgyny, what she did is she looked at ancient cultures, how the theme of androgyny played itself out through ancient Greece ancient Rome, and even into modern-day cultures like uh, the time of, of Oscar Wilde in England or the uh, VMR Republic in the 20th century Germany. And what she found is that cultures that were in the late stages of culture before their moral collapse, often before they collapsed as an empire, as a culture, would show that they were at the advanced stages of culture by seeing themselves, get this, as a cosmopolitan culture where there was no definition or very little definition of gender. And so they would say male, female, heterosexual, homosexual, anywhere in between, who cares? We're an advanced, sophisticated society. And Palea, not a Christian, deduced that that was actually the sign of the impending moral collapse 
of a culture. Are we there here today, here in the West? This passage will speak directly to that. You should have an urgency uh, to what you're bringing to this message because um, I think God uh, will want to rock our worlds about how he sees where we are in the West spiritually today. And so um, uh, before we do, I want to just give a kind of a big picture. Let's go on to the next slide. All right, so what we did last week, just by way of the big picture, and then we'll get into this passage, is we looked at uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 1 through 17. Last week, we focused on uh, verse 17, where it says, the righteous will live by faith. That is essentially uh, Paul's primary message in the first 17 verses of Romans. Now, today, just give you a big picture, and then we'll zero in on our passage. Go on to the next passage. Now, in chapter 3, Paul is going to make a statement where he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, to prove that, in chapter 1, which is we're going to look at today, he's going to make the point that all the Gentiles, that's all of us, are guilty uh, before God because of the worship of self. In the second chapter, which we'll get to next week, he's going to make the point that the Jews are guilty because they have not upheld the law. And so that's where he's going with this, why the Gentiles and why the Jews are both guilty. But for today, we're going to focus on this passage. Why are the Gentiles guilty before God? Because they do not worship God. We do not worship God in our natural spiritual state. We worship ourselves. And that is the gist of our passage today. So let's go to this. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32. Uh, Let's stand now for the reading of God's word. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the Apostle Paul says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking." And their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 24, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relationships with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Verse 28, since they did not seem fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, 
ruthless, ruthless. Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let's pray together. Uh, devastating words here, Lord, that the Holy Spirit has given to us through the Apostle Paul, and yet uh, cut, cutting our culture to the heart because it so accurately describes the world in which we live in today. God, help us. Have mercy on us as we have just sung. But during this time, Lord, may you equip your church, build up your church to be good interpreters of what the truth and the reality is about the moral and spiritual state of the world that we live in today. May we be sober-minded. May we be alert. uh, And may we uh, recommit ourselves to the life we have, the salvation we have in Christ amidst a perishing world around us, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Thank you. (coughs) Let's go through this passage. And we'll go to the first section here. In verse 18, Paul says this, For the wrath of God is revealed. And it's revealed against all ungodliness and righteousness. Because men or men and women, essentially, suppress the truth. This is verse 18. See this phrase, this word wrath in verse 18. Wrath comes from the Greek word orge. O-O-R-G-E. Orge means, we translate that as wrath. When you look through the pages of scripture, there are essentially six forms, six manifestations of God's wrath in scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Number one, there is environmental wrath. You think of the flood of Noah's day. The earth was evil, wicked thoughts constantly. God wipes them out with a flood. That's environmental wrath. That was an expression of God's wrath. Number two, There is the wrath of sowing and reaping that's talked about in the Bible. Uh, Galatians chapter 6, that says that if we sow to the Spirit, we will reap life. If we sow to the flesh, we will reap what? Destruction. That there is a sense that God has created this world with a, a spiritual law of sowing and reaping, where if we sow to the flesh, we will reap destruction. And that is a form of system systemic wrath that God has built into our spiritual uh, spiritual laws in which we live under. There's environmental wrath. There's the law of sowing and reaching. Number three, there's the wrath of God's delusion. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it says, in the end times, when people's hearts have become hardened towards God, when the Antichrist rules, when people embrace the lie, it says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that God in the end times will look at man's heart saying, you're so far gone, you've rejected me, you will never come to faith. I'm going to now send you a delusion that will cause you to believe the lie. And that's terrible. I mean, can you imagine a point in human history that will happen when God is now essentially sending you a deluding influence so that you do not come to faith because your heart was hardened. There is the wrath of God's solution. Number four, there is eschatological wrath. Eschatological wrath that's talked about in the book of Revelation. That is where Revelation says a third of the stars came down. People died of plagues. People were destroying each other in war. And this is the, the wrath of God being poured out through the seals and the bowls and the trumpets that's talked about in the book of Revelation. Number five, there is eternal wrath, which is the wrath of hell, where all who do not believe will be thrown into the lake of fire. 
with death and Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet, as well as all in unbelief. Number six is the type of wrath that is talked about here in Revelation 1. When Paul says in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed, he is talking primarily about a sixth type of manifestation of God's wrath. And that wrath is the wrath of God giving us over to ourselves. It is the wrath of God removing his hand of restraining grace off of our lives, and we become who we are in our natural spiritual state. Think of it this way. It's like Elvis has left the building. Think of it this way. It's like you, Hitler was worse than you. That person who goes into the elementary school and bombs those kids, blows away those kids, that person is worse, more evil than you. But the only real difference, while they are worse and more evil than us, the only real difference that keeps us from being the school bomber, that keeps us from being the Hitler, is not that we're just like, you know, we were raised the right way by our family. It is because God's hand of restraining grace is upon our lives, keeping us from being that bad. If God was to fully remove his hand of restraining grace off of humanity, we would all be bombers. We would all be Hitlers. That's the essential message of the Bible. And that's why when Paul says, grace to you, peace to you, may God's grace be upon you, that is God's grace to us. Whether you're a believer or not, his hand of restraining grace upon our lives is very important. And so when it says, and we'll we'll get to in a few moments, God gave them over. He gave them over. He gave them. It's significant because you're going to see at the end of the passage what the human heart looks like in its natural spiritual state. And so he says, the wrath of God is being manifest. And again, in verse 18, he says, who by all their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He's saying that humanity in their natural spiritual state gets to a place of ungodliness and unrighteousness, and they suppress the truth. God's wrath is upon us by removing his hand of restraining grace for those who do not believe. Why? Because we suppress the truth. This word suppress comes from the Greek word kateho, kateho, which means to hold down, to suppress. So it's this idea that God has revealed truth to us. He has given to us truth. The human heart in its natural state chooses to suppress it, to hold it down, Not just to say, well, let me weigh the evidence, but literally is the idea of it's on me. It's around me. It's for me to see everywhere around me, God's truth, but I will literally press it down. I will really close the door, close the window. I will stomp on it because I don't want that for my life. It would mean I'd have to worship God. And so that is why God's wrath has come upon the unbelieving Gentiles. And he goes on to an explanation now in these following verses. In verse 19 and following. He says in verse 19, well, what can be known about God? He's made it plainly known to people. And in verse 20, he says, 
the invisible attributes of God, and he mentions two things. One, his eternal power, and secondly, his divine nature, had been clearly perceived since the creation of of the world, so that um, people are without excuse. He goes on to say in verse 21, though they knew God, they didn't honor him or give thanks to him. But, uh, and there's three things that happens to their hearts. Number one, they become futile in their thinking, verse 21. Number two, they have foolish hearts that are darkened, again, verse 21. And number, verse 22, though they thought they were wise, they became fools. Now let's stop there. Now what is Paul saying at this point in verse 19 through verse 22? He's saying that God has created all of creation. God has created human beings in that creation. The way God has created the universe is such that he has given enough evidence just by the created order of the universe for all people to come to the following two two conclusions. Number one, there is an eternal power that did this. And number two, this eternal power that is God that, that made all this, he's given us clues of his divine nature, that he's omnipotent, all-powerful, that he's all-knowing, omniscient, and that he's all-present. Um, so Paul says that we are without excuse. That when we look at the billions of stars out there in the universe, when we look at the galaxy, all the way down to the smallest, our smallest understanding at a molecular level, at the subatomic level, from the biggest to the smallest, when we look at the universe, whether big or in the micro universe of the trillions of cells in our body, when we look at the complexity of the thing, when we look at the, the uh, ability to uh, conceptualize the universe, the ability to, the universe had to come from somewhere. When we look at the beauty, the complexity, and the power of it, Paul is saying that every human being in their heart knows that God exists, that God is to be worshipped. Think about what Paul is saying here. He is saying there is no such thing as a true atheist. That even an atheist, a Sam Harris out there, a Richard Dawkins or your neighbor can give you all the arguments for why they think God doesn't exist, for why the Bible's wrong. But what Paul and the scripture is saying is they're lying. In their heart, their own arguments are only to support their prior decision that they've already made, which is what? I don't want to believe in God even though I know he exists, therefore I don't want to worship him and be accountable to him. Therefore I'm going to look for some kind of argument to support, to suppress what I already know to be true. There are no atheists. 
They're only liars, is what Paul and the scriptures are saying. And so that's why atheism is not really about an intellectual argument. It is about a condition of the human heart. Does the human heart want to acknowledge God, worship him, or does it not? In verse 23, he says this. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Um, They exchanged the worship of God for the worship of birds and images, and creeping things. Now, a couple things here. Number one, notice the progression of Paul's argument. Step one, we're created by God. Creation is created by God. Step two, God's given enough evidence in the creation for every single human being to know that God exists and and the basics of what God is like, and God is worthy to be worshipped. Step three, the human heart in its natural state rejects that. Not because there's not enough evidence in creation, but because why? Their foolish hearts were darkened, futile in their thinking. They became wise. They did not want to acknowledge God. They suppress that truth by choice. But verse 23 is interesting, isn't it? Because you might think that, well, if you reject the worship of God, you'll just be neutral. And what we discover is that's not the case. See, there's no neutral gear to the human spirit. The human spirit is always worshiping something or someone. There's never a moment in your life where your heart is not worshiping either something or someone. It's just a matter of what or who. And so when he's saying that they've worshiped these these created things, we live in a culture today that does. Apple, Tesla, cryptocurrencies, American sports. These are all religions of worship today. Has anyone ever gone to an NFL game on a Sunday? They pay their money. That's their offering. They, they sing at some point. That's their praise music. They lift up their hands in worship when there's a touchdown. You know, there's community talking, there's high fights, there's celebrating, there's eating, breaking of bread together. There's names on the dirty. Who's your idol of worship? What's his name? Is it the wide receiver? Is it the quarterback? What is it? These are nothing wrong with sports, but these things have reached a fever pitch of worship. Disneyland, you know, that's another form of worship. Although it's okay to visit Disneyland sometimes, that's fine. But, but... <laughs> But this is what he says, and it's interesting. There's no spiritually neutral gear to the human spirit. The human spirit, if it's not worshiping God, follow the progression. It's going to worship things. And when he says this in verse 23, the exchange, see that phrase, exchanged, the glory of the immortal God. And then he says, images resembling mortal man, birds, and animals. That's very interesting, right? That a culture moves to this stage of saying, if we don't worship God, we will now worship images of animals. 
and then images of mortal man. There was a man named Emil Durkheim. He was, uh, he's one of the founders of the modern day field of sociology. And uh, Durkheim wrote this book in the 1920s. He did a research project where he studied, he asked himself the question, how do primitive peoples come to decide on which object they should put on their totem pole to worship? How, how do they come to that decision? They noticed like in these primitive cultures in developing world countries, they would have these totem poles. And so he studied the Aboriginal tribes in Australia, and he wrote a book uh, with his findings called uh, Elementary Forms of the Religious Life. And in around the 1920s, this was his conclusion. When he studied, when Durkheim studied these, um, these tribal people, he said they follow this same pattern. Step one, the tribe of people comes together and they decide what is it among themselves that makes them truly unique. Um, are they, do they run fast? Are they strong, physically strong? Are they like intellectually smart? Are they good hunters? What is it about their particular tribe that, that they have a real strength in? Step two, after they have determined what their uh, strength as a tribe is, they then look for an animal that represents that characteristic, that quality. And we see this in, today, in our modern day language, right? We say smart as a fox, strong as an ox, etc. Step three. After the tribe has determined what makes them unique, and they have found an animal that represents that, step three is they then build a totem pole with the face or the, the, the body of that animal on the totem pole. And step four, and this is where Durkheim comes to his brilliant conclusion. He says, when the tribe worships the totem pole, they are in reality doing what? Worshiping themselves. That is the message of Romans chapter 1. When you leave the worship of God, you do not become an atheist. It actually leads to the worship of self. What you have to understand is if you have a continuum between um, belief and unbelief, and on this side you say this is the worship of God, belief in God, worship of God, when you get further away from it, it it's not atheism. You know, there's this um, cartoon in the 1920s by um, a religious group called the Fundamentalists. And they had this cartoon I saw it, I, I write about it in one of my books. And I, it says, um, it's called a cartoon, it says, it's called The Descent of the Modernists. The one picture cartoon, The Descent of the Modernists, 1920s. And it showed um, this picture of the descent into unbelief. And it's a staircase, okay? This guy's at the top, the staircase is, is, is dark at the bottom. And the first step down says, the Bible is not inerrant. And then you go a step down further and it says, Jesus is not the only way to God. And then you go a step further, it says, Christianity is just a, a, a myth. And you keep going down. And then the second last step is agnosticism, which is uh, maybe there's God, maybe there's not. And the last step down on the staircase, is, it's labeled atheism. And the message of the cartoon is the furthest place away from belief in the worship of God is to deny that God exists. Now, that was a 20th century cartoon. If we were to update that to the 21st century, I would add a last step beyond atheism. Uh, atheism. And the last step is actually not atheism away from the worship of God. It is the belief that you are God. It is the worship of yourself as God 
Isn't that what led to Lucifer's downfall? You can look in Isaiah 14. You can look at uh, Ezekiel 28. I will be God. I will be like the most high. Lucifer fell not because he was in heaven as God's archangel and said, I no longer believe that you're God. He fell because he's like, I want to be God. See, the opposite of the worship of God is not the denial of God's existence. It is the worship of self as God. And that's actually how we would draw the descent of the modernists for the 21st century. Um, And so you think about verse 23. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Images resembling mortal man. Do we do that today in our culture? Do we worship images resembling mortal man? Yeah, we do, right? I mean, you, you look last month in August, just this past month, at the Burning Man Conference in Nevada. You may not have been there. Many of you know what I'm talking about. It's this conference. It's kind of this Mad Max meets Coachella kind of conference in Nevada every November. It's about a week long or around there. And thousands and thousands of people go out to the desert. It's supposed to be environmental friendly. But basically, you have um, people in cosplay and you have people or no clothes at all. And you have concerts, you have seminars, you have just this kind of um, this uh, kind of uh, temporary community of people who come together. And it's a really uh, a lawless gathering in many respects. But it's an expression of primal man, primal woman there in the desert. And, it, and, you know, you'd think that that's just this weird gathering for, you know, hippies that want to long for the 1960s. But it's not, you know, you see young, you see old. It's a cool thing. You see corporate. I, there's a guy who is uh, the head of international trading at Fidelity, that Fidelity Investments, and that handles like $3 trillion worth of assets. I saw a picture of him on my Twitter feed, and he's at Burning Man, all right, enjoying his time. At the end of Burning Man, they have a wooden effigy. An effigy is a, a kind of a structure of a human being, a man. And every year at Burning Man, it, it's like this towering structure. I don't know how big it is, like 40, 50, 60 feet. They burn it to the ground. Right? And that's the last thing they do in the festival. And you realize a couple of things. What Durkheim is saying, that we, the objects that we create in totem poles are actually a reflection of worshiping ourselves. When you look at that wooden effigy of a man at Burning Man, you realize that is really the expression of Western spirituality gone mad. It is the building of a mortal man, an image resembling mortal, mortal man. And it is ironic that at the end of the Burning Man festival, they burn it to the ground. Because it shows what man's future destiny is without the Lord. And so he goes on to say this in verse 24 through 28. Now look at verse 24, look at verse 26, and look at verse 28. He uses the same phrase there. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up. Verse 28, since they did not set, see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. It's the same phrase used three times. And uh, this phrase, gave up, in the Greek, paradidome, paradidome, means to surrender. 
to let go. This is the Orger wrath in verse 18. God does not strike you down with a lightning bolt in this type of wrath. He says, you don't want to worship me. You have a choice. You have now chosen to worship the created things. And as we'll see in a moment, it ultimately leads to the worship of the creature, not the creator. Therefore, I, as God, I'm not going to strike you down with lightning. Not yet. I will just simply let go my hand of restraining grace. Let you become who you naturally are without me. And that's why the Gentiles are guilty. This is where self-worship leads. And so uh, let's notice this in verse 24. said, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, dishonoring their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. So God gives human beings up and it says he gave them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity. When God gives you up, your lust is in control. When it says this word lust, he's not just talking about sexual lust. He's not this, this sense of unrestrained greed, unrestrained uh, sexuality, unrestrained, the sense of, uh, you're, you become like this lustful, this devouring human being. You know, if, um, if there were two metaphors I could choose to describe who human beings have become today, here in the West, outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, just to kind of give us a visual image of who people are in this advanced state of depravity we now have here in the West, outside of Christ. The two images I would have uh, would be, we have become zombies and vampires. Uh, That's images one, because zombies are like the living dead. Vampires are the living dead. Vampires and zombies know that the life is found in the flesh and in the blood. And if you can't find the life of the flesh and the blood in Christ, you look to devour other people for it. And you seem like you're alive. You got air in your lungs. Your, your heart is beating. But you're actually spiritually dead. And you become this devourous human. Doesn't this explain why there's this like seemingly normal people in society? And all of a sudden they go mad in their random acts of terror. Blowing up people. Going crazy at the gas station. It's because they're searching. They're vacuumous. We become vacuumous human beings for life. And if it's not a vampire and a zombie, I think the second metaphor, very similar, but just from a different angle, a space angle, I describe human beings here as the West as spiritual black holes. Now, you, you and I, we don't know the mathematics or the physics of a black hole, but we do understand the concept. In space, there's this black hole. Not even light can escape. It's sucking everything in. I was, at, I was eating lunch one day at a, uh, in downtown LA with a young man. I was uh, a pastor had asked me to counsel this person. Doesn't go to our church. And so I met them at uh, Fleep's or Felipe's uh, fro- uh, French dip sandwich place. And uh, we were sitting there and he was kind of struggling with things about the Christian faith. I'm not, it's not clear to me that he was actually a Christian. And uh, we were talking about this Roman once passage. And I, I sat down and I was at lunch with him. And I said, you know, I'll explain it to you this way. What Paul's saying in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32. Uh, we're here and look at this food. It's beautiful. We got this French dip sandwich. We got lemonade. We got potato salad. It's wonderful. I'm looking at you. You seem like a well-mannered young man. He's like in his early 20s or so. Uh, you seem like a decent fellow. 
And so we're here. The sun is out. Beautiful day, beautiful food, you know, decent looking people, you and I at this table. But then I said, now I want you to imagine for a moment that I took away from you all forms of food for 40 days. Imagine that I took away from you water for 48 hours. Imagine that I denied you of oxygen for two minutes. If I did any one of those things, you would not be this well-mannered person I'm seeing in front of you, in front of me. What would happen is you'd become a maniac. You would do whatever it took to get food or water, certainly air, right? I said, that's who you'd become. And you know what? I would too, and all of you would too, if we were denied food, water, and air. We'd become a maniac. We'd grasp at anything to get it. That is the metaphor of what Paul's talking about here in Romans 1. He is saying that when you don't connect with the God who is the source of life, when you're not worshiping the only source of spiritual life, which is God, the human soul is not stop, does not stop worshiping. It searches for something else to worship. You can call it money. You can call it an object. You can, you can call it another person. Whatever it is. But they're not the source of spiritual life for us, are they? They're spiritually dead in terms of giving us the life that only God can give to us. And so the, more, the longer we live not worshiping God, the more deprived our soul is of the living water, of the bread who came down from heaven, and of the, the breath of the Spirit, and our soul becomes a maniac searching for life. We become a spiritual black hole, spiritual zombies and vampires. That explains our society today. Because God is the only source of life in worship. And he says in verse 25, they, they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Who is the creature? That's us. Not, and the creator is God. In verse 26, he says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Now notice this. In verse 27, the uh, uh, second part of verse 26 and 27, it's very interesting because in this verse, these two verses, within the context of a conversation and a teaching on worship, Paul now mentions homosexuality. The plain reading of verse 26 and 27 is this. Women exchanged natural relations. They became lesbian. Verse 27, men became homosexual. And it says, verse 27, they were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now think about this. Think about this. Why did Paul mention this? Why did he mention homosexuality? He didn't have to. He did not have to, but he went out of his way to couch an example, to give us an example of what the worship of self looked like. And the example he gives is homosexuality. Why? He didn't have to do that. Now, before I get into an answer for that, I want to say a few things. Um, Number one, there's about six or seven references throughout the entire scriptures to homosexuality. 
None of them are positive. They are all taught, homosexuality is talked about neg- negatively from uh, Genesis to Revelation. Whether you um, are a Christian or a non-Christian, everyone is in agreement with that. Everyone agrees that the Bible has nothing positive to say about homosexuality, number one. Number two is that um, what I'm about to say is not coming from a place of hate. I don't want anyone coming up to me and saying, oh, you hate gay people, Pastor Chris. That's not true. I spent nine and a half years of my life from 2000, me and Lorraine and the kids, we spent nine and a half years in downtown Long Beach from 2004 to 2013. If you're not familiar with downtown Long Beach, there's one of the largest LGBTQ plus communities in the, in the, in the country in downtown Long Beach. I can tell you, I can tell you stories. I can give you names of people who walked in the doors of our church and we treated them with dignity, with kindness. We preached the gospel to them, but we didn't hate them. Um, so it's not about hate. Number three, when scholars here look at verse 26 and 27, uh, gay scholars, if you want to call them scholars, and they're, they're not really not gay scholars at all, they're false teachers. But the argument that they give, they say, you know what, Paul is clearly not saying anything positive about homosexuality here in verse 26 and 27, but they reinterpret it in basically two ways. The, uh, the false teacher gay scholars say, number one, well, Paul's condemning homosexuality because, number one, he, he's really condemning uncommitted homosexuality. See, he was, he, he was saying, well, as he looked around in this Greek culture, this Roman culture, he didn't like the fact that some, some homosexuals were just sleeping around with different people, but he would have been okay, the argument goes, with committed homosexuality. Therefore, he would have been okay with gay marriage today. That's one of argument one. Argument two is, well, what Paul was really condemning was a type of homosexuality where it was pedophilia, where these older Greek men would take these younger Greek boys, and it was wrong. And so really the issue was adult to minor, and Paul would have been okay with peer-to-peer consensual homosexual acts. Wrong. It's garbage. It's rubbish. But that's the argument that's given today. It's completely a fabrication to support a false argument to tear down Scripture and to dismantle what is clearly the plain reading of the text. And so we come back to this question of why, why would Paul mention homosexuality in the context of worship, the, the abandonment of the worship of God and the worship of self? It makes complete sense to me for this reason. If I choose not to worship God, I'm going to have to worship something or someone. I I don't not worship things. And when I try and worship things and people outside of God, I discover that um, there might be some pleasure in that, but there's there's no spiritual life there because they're not my savior and they're not God. And so therefore, that then leads me, if, if the creeping things and the images of mortal man and the created things that I try and worship in place of God don't work, I will then be left with one other option, which is what? To worship myself. Now, why did Paul mention homosexuality in the context of this conversation? It is because all of this, there is a connection 
between your sexuality and your spirituality. Your sexuality is part of how you act out what you spiritually believe and who you are as a spiritual human being in many ways. If I come to a place where Paul is talking about where I'm worshiping myself, and that is my predominant spiritual stance, follow this, I'm going to look for someone to have sex with that looks exactly like me. Why? Is because if I'm worshiping myself, why wouldn't I want to be with someone who looks exactly like me to join with? Because it's another expression of self-worship. Paul didn't have to mention homosexuality. He did. And this is the reason why. You guys, you have to be clear in your mind about this. This is not a game. and It's not some minor doctrine. This is a macro framework that you have to understand about what's happening in Western society today. You have to understand that when a society gets to a place, male, female, it doesn't make a difference, pronouns, whatever, we, don't, we can't tell a difference, I'm asexual, I'm omnisexual, I'm homosexual, I'm trans, I'm whatever it is and anything in between, we've lost our minds. It's a sign that God has given over a culture to its own devices. And when you see a culture that's steeped in LGBTQ+, plus, that is not primarily a conversation about science and gay genes. It's not primarily a conversation about whether gay marriage should be legalized or not. It's not primarily a conversation about the socio-psychological factors that might be in play in that whole conversation. It's not primarily a conversation about what's cool in pop culture at, the, at this moment. It is primarily an indication that our world has been given up by God. And there is a reason. You can go back to the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, early 2000s. There were these Christian ministries that specialized. They would advertise. I would hear these things on the radio. We are a Christian ministry that will help. If you're struggling with homosexuality, you can come to our ministry. We will help you to find Christ. We will help you to honor the Lord with your body, etc. And the goal of these ministries to begin with was people who come to them from the LGBTQ plus community would hopefully give their lives to Christ and then they would uh, go on and hopefully become heterosexual or at least abstinent. Okay? What happened over the decades is they found that these ministries were largely ineffective because very few people would actually come from a hardcore life of LGBTQ community. And yes, there's, there's examples that are the outlier exceptions, and they write books. We hold these people up, right? We get that. We understand that. We know uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul says, some of you were former adulterers and swindlers and idolaters and homosexuals, but now you have come to know Christ. So we understand that. We understand anyone can come to know Christ, right? That said, these ministries closed down. Why? It's because... The LGBTQ plus um, state of the human soul is an advanced form of self-idolatry. And when you get to that spot, you are talking about verse 24, 26, and 28. God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over to the lust of their passions and to a debased mind. The mind is gone. The, the primal, emotional, 
lustful spirit is ruling the individual. And um, we hope that they come to know Christ, but it is very, very difficult at that point. And we live in a time where not only have Christian ministries folded their doors related to this issue, but the church has capitulated on this issue. The Church of Jesus Christ in America has basically said this. Many churches have old denominations. They have said gay marriage is okay. They have said the ordination of gay pastors or gay women pastors are okay. And they have said that um, the education of the LGBTQ plus agenda out in the school system, in the world of business, should be embraced. And we now live in a time that scholars have pointed out, rightly so, that this is not, oh, we li- hey, it's a free country. Hey, God allows us to make free choices. And so therefore, if you want that free life, you have the freedom. Nobody is saying that you don't have the, the freedom to make your own choice. That's not the issue. Even Christians who are biblical will not say that. People have freedom to make their own choices. The difference today in the 21st century in the West is this. We now live in a time where people not only have the freedom, which they do, but now... Those of us who had the biblical stance on this are now told if we do not affirm the rightness of that choice from that individual, that we are bullies, we are haters, and um, we should be the ones that are persecuted. If we do not affirm the rightness of that choice. And uh, it's dark days ahead for the church, you guys. Um, Unfortunately, God's going to prune the church and... um, there's uh, some rough roads ahead. And so, to, cl- to close, in verse 29, now, this is the final state. The final state is, this is what human beings look like when God has left them. It says, we're filled with all manner of unrighteousness. And he goes through this list, and it's just, an, just a diatribe. It's devastating to look at this, and, 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 and yet, there's truth to it, isn't it? When you look at this list, are children haters of their parents today? You can watch these teen, tween shows and cartoons. They're completely disrespectful to their parents. Are people slanderers? Deceitful? Murderers? Are there inventors of evil? When you look on your social media feed and all of that, do you see that happen? Yeah, of course we do. That's the place that we are in. Are we at a place where people not only practice evil, but they approve of others practicing evil and encourage it? Yes, we are. And so, to sum up here, Uh, Paul's argument in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32, is that we have all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. For us who are not Jewish, we have sinned because we have left the worship of God. And we we have hearts that are prone to idolatry, to worship ourselves. The due penalty for that is that God has expressed his wrath by removing his hand of restraining grace from us. If you're out there right now, and you're sitting here and you're listening to this whole thing I'm saying, and you're like, oh, you know what? Yeah, but I'm good. 
yeah, our society is going to be fine. Yeah, um, uh, it's okay. We don't need God. We'll figure it out through technological innovation or human ingenuity or the, the altruism of the human spirit. You're fooling yourself. You're fooling yourself. You're not seeing clearly the vacuumous, black hole, zombie-like, vampire-like state of the human heart outside of being filled by the life of God. That's why you should be at church, by the way. That's why we should believe. Because we have come to the conclusion that says, it's not just society out there. The human heart is in this condition. If it does not connect with the worship, the worship of God is not just singing a song. It's who are you getting spiritual life from? And you get that from your object of worship. And if you're not getting that life from God, then you will be the zombie and the vampire in the black hole. And that's where society is at. So uh, we who believe have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so um, praise God for that. Let's close. Father, as we close together, let's stand actually. We're going to close the service here. And now as you go forward, may you know that the Lord Jesus Christ has saved you from God's wrath. May you know that you who believe God will never remove his hand of restraining grace. You may not be as bad as you could be, um, but Jesus Christ has brought you the life of God. You're living in a time where our world has been given over by God to become who it naturally is, a spiritually barbaric state. So may you go from this place with a sense of spiritual urgency to share the gospel, to place your trust in the gospel, to connect with the God that you worship as your source of life, because you know that who the human heart can be without it is dark, foolish, and evil. And may the Lord save us. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, may the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now. Amen. And all of God's people said, amen. All right. If you guys, if you would like prayer, we'll have some people available for prayer up here for you. But um, if it's urgent, otherwise we're all headed out to the beach right now for baptism. God bless you guys.